Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Buddha, at his birth, walked seven steps firmly, looked to each of the four quarters of the earth, declaring both freedom and independence for humankind. He said, above the heavens, beneath the earth, I alone am the world-honored one. Ever since then, the wise recognize each person as master of the universe, while the unenlightened judge people by the color of their faces. Enlightenment has no concern with color, race, or wealth. How long will humans ignore the words of the baby Buddha and fight shamelessly over the yellow metal and selfish power. Hey! Happy birthday! That verse that I just read was written by Yogin Senzaki on April 13th, 1941. So just 80 years ago, a time of global hostilities and great consternation and uncertainty, not so different from this era that we are in. In 1942, he and all other Japanese were imprisoned by the American government, held in concentration camps for the duration of the war. Now again, it's a dangerous time. So much prejudice, red racism, aggression against Asians in America. It's been two years since I could be here in person for Buddha's birthday. Bathing the baby Buddha in his flower pavilion and chanting with all of you residents at the newly opened spring kese at Daibosatsu Zendo and with everyone all over the world on Zoom. This celebration of new birth and renewal, springtime, holy days, Easter, and Passover just before Buddha's birthday. And Passover continued for us here at the monastery. Our esteemed Tenzo monk became a Yiddisha mama and served us matzo ball soup, delicious kugel, and 
apples with walnuts and raisins, Herosis. I did not see any matzo balls in the ozen tray, however. In our dedication, this verse, we recited, having poured ambrosial nectar, pure water from Beecher Lake, the five defilements depart from all beings. What are these five defilements? Anyone? Anything you've noticed lately? Well, in general, we could say mental states that cloud the mind, such as fear, forgetfulness, worry, animosity, self-loathing, and various forms of egocentricity. Very different, I might add, from what the baby Buddha said. I alone am the world-honored one. If your ears are filled with dualistic notions, you may think that is egocentricity. No. Principally, these defilements are none other than the three poisons which are attachment, aversion, and ignorance. And now that we have bathed the baby Buddha and recited that verse, where are they? Gone! Gone! No more defilements. Feel that? Good. So with this ceremony, we all realize the pure Dharma body of the Buddha. This is the Dharmakaya of the Buddha, a pure Dharma body revealed in Nirmanakaya, his taking birth, human birth, for our sake. Right here, on this great Bodhisattva mountain, in like a dream, like a fantasy, Nyogen Senzaki tells us this place, this place. He was speaking about where he was, but let's regard it as this very place was established to be the birthplace of Buddha. What does that mean? You are here. You are being born. Yes, endlessly. We, he says, 
we do not want to raise butterflies here. Oh, I think I'll go to this endo, and then maybe I'll try another one, and then maybe I'll try, uh, let's see, Vipassana, maybe for a week or so, and then I'll go to uh, check out that new yoga retreat. And We do not want to raise butterflies here. They fly from one teaching to another. We do not want to have the children of Asuras. They fight even in the stage of babyhood. We do not want to raise monkeys and parrots here. They simply imitate what they have seen and heard. The mentor garden, Yogan Senzaki's Sangha, is the nursery only for baby Buddhas who love silence and who will express loving kindness without a word. If we do not warn each other and watch our steps, this Flower pavilion may turn into a spiritual zoo filled with strange creatures. These creatures are born every minute, everywhere in the world. Look out! So wonderful taste of Nyogen Senzaki's teaching. And uh, that's from a talk that he gave on April 11th, 1948, called Buddha's Birthday Celebration. And of course, we will have Yogan Senzaki session coming up in just about a month. Now, most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of the Shakyamuni Buddha's birth, Siddhartha Gautama. His mother, Lady Maya, with her retinue, returning to her family home to have her baby. But on the way, saw this beautiful flower garden Garden of Lumbini, and reached up to grasp a bough filled with blossoms. And just then, her time came, and the baby was born. So easy. And as legend goes, he walked seven steps north, south, east, west, walking from the center to each direction, then returning to the center. And there, what did he do? Somebody can stand up and show us. Baby Buddha, go ahead. Take it away. Yes, raising and pointing to the sky with one hand, pointing to the ground with the other, and declaring, above the heavens, and below the earth. I alone am the world on earth. Yes. This, what does this mean? Above the heavens. How far above? Below the earth. How far down is that? What's left out? Hmm? 
Anything? Anyone? Hmm? Everything. Everything included, right? Not a single being is left out. Feeling the cosmos beyond boundaries, unlimited, inconceivable. And you know, before we're taught otherwise, each of us is born with this feeling. It may be difficult to remember, especially if you've had a good education. But each of us, coming from the formless realm, growing in the womb, emerging with a great cry, here I am, taking that first breath and exhaling declaration of independence. Shining alone and one with all. This fresh new being, each of us has done this. And the world has never again been the same. This may be a startling thing for you to think, wow, you mean my coming to this world has changed it forever? How could it not? All of life is interdependent. One exists only in relation to all other existence. There is no inherent separate self-existence. So at each moment, there is this dependent co-arising, as it's called in Buddhism, of all phenomena. You are born, therefore, something happens in this world. So, I alone, truly this is, to understand this, because of this, relationship is happening. I alone, I all one. And surrounded by blossoms, this baby Buddha's great arrival happened around the year 563 before the common era. How about you? Some of us came in the midst of fierce rainstorms. Some of us in the tumbling autumn leaves, some on a bright, shiny day like this, others in the starlit night, or maybe during thickly falling snow. But Shakyamuni was born and taught and died among the flowers. Soen Roshi has a very well-known haiku 
that I wanted to share with you. In his journal on April 8th, 1946, he wrote, Today, Father Makshima has completed his great sacred mural, The Birth of Buddha. We have a mural by Father Makshima in the Beecher House. What is it? Anybody? What does it depict? It's got to tell Buddha, but I don't remember what thing it is. Flower ceremony. Hmm? Flower ceremony. The flower ceremony. Ah, yeah. Is anybody smiling? depicts the first transmission. So we will see it soon as the Beecher House is being finished. Very soon it will be once again in view. Anyway, Son Roshi was writing about his friend, Father Makshima, whom he brought here in the 70s. While secluded in St. Nicholas Cathedral in Tokyo, even throughout the air raids, he painted with every ounce of his being. To celebrate the completion of the mural, a bunch of artists got together. They had a great time chanting sutras, playing shakuhachi, and having tea ceremony until late at night. Even some American people join us arriving in a jeep, friends and enemies, one blossoming dream. And here's the haiku. Hana no yo no hana no yo naru hito bakari. All beings are flowers blooming in a flowering universe. Well, it seems that a seer, a royal fortune teller, had prophesied that the baby would either be a great ruler or a great spiritual renunciate. He was given the name Siddhartha which means he whose purpose in life has been attained. Now, of course, for the parents, that purpose was envisioned as the great ruler, someone who would bring together all the various small nations around them and rule over them all. As Eknath Eswaran put it in the Dhammapada, King Shudohadana had little interest in seeing his son and sole heir wander off into the forest in search of truth. Now just a few days after Siddhartha's birth, his mother Lady Maya passed away. His father, the king, and his aunt, Yasudara, made sure that the prince had every luxury. The palace was surrounded by fragrant rose bushes, and they kept him from seeing anything that could cause him distress that might lead toward a spiritual quest. But when just a few days old, he had experienced the loss of his mother. So many of us have been drawn to this path because of such a loss. 
or on the path, having already begun this practice and losing a dear one and strengthening in our resolve. There's such a sharp sense of transience. Think about Nyogen Senzaki as a baby found next to his mother's corpse. Think about Wenong Eno, the sixth ancestor, who lost his father. And so in Roshi, too, his father passed away when he was young. And I was a year and a half old when my father was killed in Germany in March. 1945, just before the end of World War II. So as a child, Siddhartha was very deeply affected by what he saw around him, the deaths of insects, of birds, all beings of the earth. And One day, Ace Warren tells the story, at the age of seven or eight, he went to the annual plowing festival where his father ceremonially guided the bullocks in plowing the first furrow. It was a long, stressful day. And when the boy grew sleepy, his father set him down to rest on a platform under a rose apple tree. When they returned, Hours later, they found him seated upright in the same position as they had left him. Disturbed by the ceaseless toil of the bullocks and plowmen and the plight of the tiny creatures who lost their homes and lives in the plowing, Siddhartha had become absorbed in reflection on the transience of life. In this profound absorption, he forgot himself and his surroundings completely. And a joy he had never known suffused his consciousness. Even though this experience of joy took place, he still had a piercing sense of impermanence. And one day, deeply troubled, wanting to understand, he went out from the palace (coughs) and he saw what his parents had hoped to shield him from, which was someone who was sick, someone who was old, someone who had died, and an ascetic sitting in meditation. He had to find out for himself what was the purpose of his life. It was springtime. He sat down under a fig tree, resolved not to get up until he awakened to the truth. And such deep samadhi that even Mara's armies couldn't sway him from his determination. And at last, this is Iswaran again. When dawn came, the tree under which he sat 
burst into bloom and a fragrant spring breeze showered him with blossoms. He was no longer Siddhartha, the finite personality that had been born in Kapilavastu. He was the Buddha, he who is awake. He had found the way to that realm of being which decay and death can never touch, nirvana. And he began to teach. He delivered his first sermon at the Deer Park near Varanasi. And that first sermon, as we all well know, was So when you are thinking, I alone am the world-honored one, and you say, well, I don't believe it. Hmm? Four noble truths. Oh, much better. All right. Yes, the four noble truths. One of the truths, really, is, you know, there is dukkha, and part of dukkha is lack of self-confidence, fear of making a mistake. Shout it out! So mistakes, wonderful, everybody can clap and dance because you made it for them. It's wonderful, everyone appreciates the mistake. But if you're too frightened to say it out loud, and nobody can appreciate it. It's just like, oh, yeah, right. You all know, right? Yeah, okay. Uh. So number one, the fact of dukkha. This is usually translated as suffering. It can be dissatisfaction. It can be awareness of impermanence when you're trying to hold on for dear life wanting things to be otherwise, wanting to be able to speak clearly and feeling somehow oppressed by your own inner turmoil, whatever. We all have that. We all understand dukkha, yeah? Anybody here who is completely never having had dukkha and never will again? Mm, probably not. I don't know, maybe? No, okay. <laughs> So the second noble truth is understanding. Why? What is the origin of dukkha? Look into it. That's our practice, right? What is it? What do we see when we look into it? Confusion. Hmm? Confusion. Confusion, sure. What am I supposed to do? How come I didn't understand what oh, blah, 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 goes on and on and on, that little wheel, hamster wheel we get on. Selfish desires, fears and aversions, a kind of perpetual neediness, always trying to hold on to what we like and get rid of what we don't. So in a word, we might say this self this belief in a separate self. Very different from self-confidence. So, three, the third noble truth. There is an end to suffering. Oh, I was just showing it to you. Just shut up. Stop. Yes, there is an end. When we drop our preferences, our ideas, our views, our expectations, our assumptions, just sit down. Enter into this lucid, 
awareness, a state of calm abiding, sometimes it's put. Equanimity, regardless of circumstances. Or, to use Soen Roshi's favorite, okay. Then the fourth noble truth, walking the talk, living by the Eightfold Path, right understanding, right purpose or intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort in training the mind, right attention, right meditation. That's our Zen life. It's so simple, right? We make it very complicated and therefore we get confused. Just so simple. Freedom, within discipline. Usually we're raised to expect freedom outside of restrictions, but that simply brings suffering. You may or may not have noticed. So right within the causes and conditions of this present incarnation, we are free. So later, Shakyamuni Buddha taught the assembly, said not a word, silently held out a flower as Father Makshima painted in the Beecher house. And no one responded except Mahakashapa, yes. Who was somehow truly seeing the flower? Everybody, please look at the Buddha's flower pavilion. You don't have to keep looking because it will hurt your neck since you're facing me. But just taking a quick glance, does anyone see the smile? Flower smiled. Mahakashapa smiled. This, this, the first transmission occurred so organically. And in the like a dream, like a fantasy, there's a brief description of Sabuti, who received, as you know, received the Buddha's teaching in the Diamond Sutra. And here is a little story. He was able to understand the potency of emptiness, Yogan Senzaki tells us, the viewpoint that nothing exists except in the relationship of subjectivity and objectivity. One day, Sabuti, in a mood of sublime emptiness, was sitting under a tree. Flowers began to fall about him. We are praising you for your discourse on emptiness, the gods whispered to him. But I have not spoken of emptiness, Sabuti said. You have not spoken of emptiness. We have not heard of emptiness, responded the gods. This is true emptiness. And 
blossoms showered upon Sabuti like rain. And then again, petals fell from the sky when Buddha Shakyamuni lived out this incarnation and passed into final nirvana. Petals of the rare Udombara, a type of fig tree. You know, all fig trees have invisible flowers. They are in the fruits. The seeds and the fruits are the flowers. But once every 3,000 years, the Udambara is said to give forth a flower. This rare flower. Shakyamuni Buddha said in the great Parinirvana Sutra, the Buddha's appearance in the world is rare. The human form is difficult to attain. And directly having faith in the Buddha's birth is something also difficult. Being capable of patience is difficult. Attaining the human body is rare. Your meeting me must not be passed by in vain. So the Buddha is born. How rare it is. We recite this dharma is rarely met with. And our own being born in this human form. In the Samyutta Nikaya Sutta, Buddha tells how difficult it is to attain human form. And I'm sure you remember this story. A blind thousand-year-old turtle that only comes to the surface of the ocean once every hundred years, just happens to push his head through a hole in a floating piece of wood. Rare. So now that the Buddha has appeared in this world and has given his teachings, and now that we have attained this human form, what about having faith in the Buddha's birth? In our own birth as baby Buddhas, This is our task. Directly having faith in the Buddha's birth requires great patience, persistence in your practice, slowly developing trust in what we cannot see or define. Just sitting. Just being ordinary. It happens. Someone asked me, I've been doing Mu a long time. Will I have a great breakthrough? Or will it just be sort of like the same thing forever? How wondrous to be forever. So sitting, standing, pointing to the heaven and earth, Walking, 
seven steps, 7,000 steps. Some people wear those little bracelets that tell them how many steps they walk in a day. Seven steps, wonderful. This itself is nothing but faith in our own true nature. Independent, interdependent, step by step, breath by breath, nothing to force, there is nothing to do, just keep on. And it blossoms in its own time, this readiness of time. And how fortunate we are to be here, those of us in person, those of us on Zoom, to be together in this grove of flowers. The other day, before we came, Andy and I were sitting on our porch for a few minutes in the sun, and he turned to me and he said, it's nice to be here for another spring. We know how extraordinary that is today, more than a year after the lockdowns began and mourning so many and knowing that some didn't even see that first spring. And today, in Doksan, hearing of yet another beloved Sangha member who is suffering from COVID. So with gratitude for our lives continuing in this time, we vow to live with purpose. We take up the practice of Zen with renewed vigor and find a guide in the 10 ox herding pictures, which I've been commenting on during this year of the iron ox. We've searched for the ox, not realizing that it has been here all along. We've seen the traces of the ox with watchful attention, buoyed up by the discovery that it's close by. And today, celebrating Buddha's birthday, we are meeting the ox. In his preface to this third oxerting picture, <clears throat> Gion Osho says, through sound you gain entry. By sight you face your source. The six senses are not different. In each daily deed, plainly there, like salt in water or glue in paint. 
raise your eyebrows. It is none other. With eyes to see, with ears to hear, as the expression goes, anything when we're not caught up in projections and daydreams, projections of what's the ox look like? How will I know when I see him? Expectations, when we're not caught, then anything, everything can be the trigger for awakening. But we can't plot it out. So we go into deep samadhi in session. And we come out of session and we see something, hear something from that clear mind. It's not a matter of if I do this, then I will see. For Shakyamuni Buddha, it was what? The morning star. Mm. What about Hakuin? Hakuin Zenji. He heard the sound of the temple gong. Kyogen. Waking, little piece of t broken tile struck a bamboo stalk. <sighs> and what about the 16 bodhisattvas in the bath? As a koan in Hekigan Roko tells us. All of them awakened simultaneously at the touch of the water. <sighs> many, many stories about awakenings. And if you think, okay, the next bath I take, it probably will not be the case. Maybe if you invite 15 others, I don't know. <laughs> the point is, when we are really practicing, it is wrapped, R-A-P-T, wrapped attention. And then a sound comes you are gone. You are a woodpecker. When you are fully present, Buddha activity is revealed through all the senses, all the aspects of what we call consciousness. Yamada Mumon Roshi said, when subject and object are one, there the ox comes trotting along. But how can you say it's there? Hmm? There's no there there. Jiyon Osho said, salt dissolves in water. It can't be seen. The glue in paint is also invisible. Just like the flowers of the figs, you have to wait quite a long time to see a blossom. 
Dayo Kokushi's verse on Zen. Did you hear it? He used words. There is a reality even prior to heaven and earth. Indeed, it has no form, much less a name. It allows itself to be perceived only by the clear-eyed. If you seek it by form, by some idea of how it will arrive, what it will look like, you'll miss it. And even all of these wonderful scrolls and paintings and poems and commentaries are just expedient means. Like Yamakawa Roshi's shikishi with the painting of the ox in the hallway outside the meeting room. If you look for that ox, he's long gone. What does this reality, this true nature, really look like? So we have Kakuan's verse. In the trees, nightingales sing and sing again. Just a moment again, there. Did you hear the ox? Sun warms the soft wind. Such a perfect description of our days here. Feeling that sun warming the soft wind. Green willows line the bank. Not yet. Here, there's nowhere left for it to hide. The baby Buddha is pointing. You, you, you. Its majestic head and horns no artist can draw. When you make nothing into something, that's mere description. That's just a two-dimensional poor attempt. The living ox cannot be caught that way. So I want to encourage you to read Yogen Senzaki on the third ox herding picture. We don't have time for me to read the whole thing, but I will just <clears throat> give you the first and last paragraphs. As with receiving tea, so with self-realization. You hold your empty cup. You are ready. But you must wait for someone to pour the tea. Self-realization, or bumping squarely into your true self, usually involves a so-called karma relation, an uncanny coincidence, a trigger, a mysterious connection, that can't be rationally explained in the same way. Instead of seeking out your karma relation, devote yourself to constant meditation with no desire for attainment. Then the doors of the gateless gate 
will open for you by themselves. Each of us should strive to be the master of our own mind and body, to govern our environment in a peaceful manner, to lead a pure and unselfish life, and to be kind and helpful to our fellow beings. These are our important tasks. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.